Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show, where we interview fighters and firebrands in the political and cultural battlefields. With us today is a fighter for marriage. He is the author of a book published in 2021 called The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make. His name is Rabbi Ben-Sion Shafir. I had the honor of interviewing him twice in the past for the Jewish press, and I am honored to now welcome him to the program. Rabbi Shafir, you are the founder of The Schmooze, an organization and brand under which you have written hundreds of articles and delivered hundreds of lectures on basic Torah hashkafa. How did you come to write a book on marriage? That's a good question. Really, I deal with people from many different walks of life, many different issues. Because of the schmooze, people hear a message and they call me with problems, issues, etc. Over the past 15, maybe 20 years now, people have been coming more and more with problems with marriage. It started with small issues, but it became much larger problems, many more people. And after a while, I got to a point where I said, this is really a problem. Because it was clear that people didn't understand what a marriage needed. They certainly didn't understand each other, and on a fundamental core level, they were misunderstanding what was needed for the relationship. So I began to give certain advice, and certain things worked, certain things didn't. And after a period of these 15 years, I put together basically what seems to work, and Baruch Hashem, it's had great success, so I put it into a book, and there it is. Okay, so the title of your book is kind of intriguing, 10 Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make. If you were to identify the top two dumbest mistakes that really smart couples make, what would they be? You know, Ellie, I'm going to do that. But first, I want to mention something very important. Sure. The title of the book is for a very important reason. Because on a regular basis, I sit here and I get a couple in front of me and he speaks, she speaks, and my jaw drops. I go, I don't believe it. Are you guys, I, I just had a couple last week, we're doing the same thing. And the week before, and the week before, and you'll see people doing the same Again, I hate to say really dumb mistakes, even though they're very smart people. But let's address your question directly. What are the two largest mistakes very smart couples make? Number one, far and away, the biggest mistake I see on a regular basis is when a couple stops working on the relationship. You see, you could be 100% aligned in total outlook. You could be completely aligned in perspective. You could be totally aligned in how you want to bring up your family. But if you're not constantly reinvigorating that relationship, if you're not constantly reconnecting, you start drifting apart. And then before you know it, you're either so distant that you're in different worlds or you start rubbing against each other and you create friction. And many times I've met couples who have nothing fundamentally wrong with them, yet they're so far apart or they're fighting cats and dogs for no other reason other than they stop working on the relationship. So that is number one key. You have to remain a couple in love throughout the decades of your marriage. It's not for Shona Shona. It's for the entire length of your marriage. It means everything that a couple in love need to be doing. I happen to like Donald Trump, and I recently published a book with a collection of over 600 quotes by him on all sorts of topics. Some of these are witty. Some of these are thought-provoking. I want to read one of them, which I think you probably will not agree with. He said in an interview around 15 years ago, I've always heard you have to work at a good relationship. Look, I work very hard from early in the morning to late in the evening. I don't want to go home and have to work at a relationship. A relationship where you have to work at it, in my opinion, doesn't work. 
Now, I know Donald Trump was married twice and divorced twice, but the third marriage does seem to be working. Is this type of advice something that only really works for billionaires, or what are your thoughts? Okay, that type of advice doesn't work. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Let me explain to you why it doesn't work. You see, in the real world, the world of getting married to the right person and staying married to that right person for life requires understanding why marriage is so difficult. You see, marriage requires taking two vastly different people from different genders and asking them to mold together, meld their lives together, and living together in the closest proximity imaginable. And I make a point whenever I speak on the subject, and I made it in the book also, if you think about it, not a single marriage should work. First of all, human beings are all different. Some people are outgoing, some people are introverted, some people are bold, some people are timid, some people are risk-adverse, some people are risk-takers. I guarantee when you get married, you marry a person who's so different from you in so many ways that you'll have the reaction as most people do when they get up maybe three months or six months after wedding. And this is something I found on a regular basis. It's a very common thing. Either he or she wake up and say the words, oh my goodness, I made the biggest mistake in my life. I married the wrong one. And it's true that they're making a mistake. The mistake that they're making is they're not realizing why they feel they married the wrong one. You see, I guarantee no matter how much alike a husband and wife are in ideals and perspective, they're vastly different in temperament, nature, and outlook. That's just the way Hashem created human beings. Each human being is different. Now, I could be a great guy in the dorm and have lots of friends. A woman could be very popular amongst her friends. But when you ask two human beings to mold together lives, there are so many issues that they have to do his way, her way, and the other way. And suddenly everything reflects one on the other. If he's late, she's late. If she's sloppy, he's embarrassed. Everything they're doing, they're doing together. And here's the greatest difficulty. They're vastly different, not just in temperament and nature, different genders. Men and women are so different and so apart that to put them together and expect them to live in peace and harmony should never work. Now, obviously Hashem wants marriages to succeed. And the superpower of a marriage succeeding is something called love in the relationship. You see, if we're friends, if we're partners, if we support each other, if we love each other, then my way, your way, we figure out a way. There's always a method. But if that love starts to wane, then very quickly, differences become so huge, insurmountable, and they become just usually enemies fighting for their rights, fighting for their demands, and such a marriage can never exist. So anyone who says to you the words that mar a relationship doesn't need work or I don't want to be in that kind of relationship is making a fundamental mistake. Any relationship requires work. It requires a lot of work in giving in, understanding her needs, my needs, understanding what I have to change. And at the end of the day, you know, Baruch Hashem, we're married now. My wife and I are married now. It's coming up on 36 years. And I have to tell you something. Baruch Hashem, I'm very happily married. I love my wife. She's not here to say otherwise. But I have to tell you something, along the years, there were many, many things that I had to change, she had to change, you have to work on, because the idea of two human beings being alike and not having to change, not working on things is, is absurd. But more than that, certainly if you're not working on the relationship itself, then forget about it. And again, Donald Trump on number three, he got lucky, and I don't know how their marriage is. Uh, you and I don't know, because until you get behind closed doors, you don't know, and uh, I, I don't have a clue. But one thing for sure, that's bad advice. So I'm sorry for going on a rant, but that's... No, it's okay. I thought maybe it might be good advice if you're a billionaire. Then the woman knows what she's getting into. You know, she's getting sort of a package deal. He doesn't have to bring as much, maybe, perhaps, as someone else has to bring into a marriage. No, I don't think so. Elliot, 
market. So all the money in the world is not going to buy that. And billionaires on a regular basis get divorced. And again, Donald Trump bringing the proof. But it has nothing to do with money or power or position. It has to do with being a human being. When you're a human being, you have needs. You have emotional needs. You have real needs. And all the money in the world can't help me get used to someone else's way of doing things. And bottom line is it requires a lot of work. One reason that quote I found sort of interesting is because I guess when some people hear about work, 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 they're like, oh my gosh, who needs this marriage business if all I'm doing all day long is working? It sounds almost like, you know, very tedious and very laborious. And people say, well, I, I know these older couples, some of these couples, they look very sweet together. They don't seem like they're, you know, working and toiling all day long in their marriage. Why can't my marriage be like that? So do you mean work in a different sense or? Okay, so let me comment on that. Marriage is the most beautiful, supportive enriching relationship imaginable and it is so far you know when you're living together in close proximity with your best friend who loves you and supports you and you do the same for her it is the most empowering it's the most beautiful most harmonious relationship in the world however it requires a lot of work the primary work besides the relationship is personal growth i mean you see rabbi duritz or shiva rochester once made a very interesting comment he said, babies come into the world completely self-centered. The baby's hungry, the baby's cry, the baby's diaper's wet, the baby cries. The baby only knows and can only know its own needs. And the goal in life is to grow from being self-centered to being other-centered. Most of the time, we get stuck along the way, and somewhere we become 20% other-centered, 25%, 30%. Marriage is the first opportunity where you, you're in a relationship that demands that you put someone else's needs before your own. But it doesn't allow for it. It doesn't give you the opportunity. It demands it. And if you're incapable of doing that, you're incapable of being successfully married. Because at the end of the day, you have needs, your spouse has needs, and meeting everyone's needs in the best way demands that you actually learn to recognize their needs, validate their needs, and meet them. So the point is that much of the work in a marriage is really self-growth. The Bali Musa call it the school, the base safe for Lamidos. It's the training academy of personal development because in a real way, I'm forced to look at another's needs and meet them. And I have to be honest with you, on a regular basis, I meet guys and women as well who are so wrapped up in their own world that they cannot be successfully married. And I had a guy recently who I said to him, you need two more marriages. You have to get divorced this time, married a second time. And the third time, you're going to recognize that you are the problem. Because he was so wrapped up in his own world, he could not even begin to imagine that his wife had any rights or any needs. He comes first. He's the only one. And it may sound you know, obvious when I say it now, but it sure wasn't obvious to him. So the bottom line is, is it work? Yes. It's called self-growth. It's called self-improvement. But it's, again, it's the most harmonious, beautiful relationship. And the payros, the fruit, are so beautiful and so wonderful that it's worth the work. And more than that, if you don't put in the work, the pain and misery is very, very, as beautiful as it is to be married to your best friend, you know what it's like to share a roof and a life with a person that you hate and who hates you? And if you're married and you don't work on your marriage and you're in a very rocky spot, so what can I tell you? Life is very, very rough and very ugly. A few years ago, you told me in an interview that Laura Doyle's book, First Kill All the Marriage Counselors, is, quote, a phenomenal book and a game changer, end quote. You said again, quote, it's not for everyone, but there are some marriages that can literally be saved by it, end quote. What about this book made you praise it so highly, and do you incorporate her advice into your own book? 
Okay, it's an excellent question. So let me explain to you why I feel Laura Doyle's book is very helpful. We all, every human being gets married, has this insatiable, incredible need to change their spouse. It's, it's endemic to the human race. It's something that I find in all marriages. He needs to change her. She needs to change him. They each need to change each other. And they each spend an inordinate amount of time, effort, and energy trying to change the other. Now, the reason for that really often comes from a good place, especially with women. Women have a maternal instinct. They're good. They're giving. They're concerned. Now, here's the problem. I have a nature, and my spouse has a nature. Let's assume that I'm very on time, and my wife isn't. Or let's say I'm very neat, and my spouse isn't. I picked those two examples because in my case, it's the exact opposite. But okay, so watch what happens. Because punctuality is very important to me, and because I see it as a key to success, I see my wife coming late, and I realize if she'd be on time, she'd be much more successful. If she would need her, she'd accomplish much more. I can't help but notice that how much improved her life would be if she would adopt these traits that I have. The problem that I don't see is that the reason why I have these traits is not because I worked on them so much, but because that's within my temperament and my nature. And even though it's true that I may have developed them a little bit further, different people have different strengths, different talents, different abilities. And typically that area that I need to change in my spouse is my strength and her weakness. And once you get that, you understand why this is such a Pandora's box. Because you see, the reason why, let's say I'm on time is because by nature, I'm punctual and it's easy for me. And the problem is my spouse isn't, and therefore it's very hard for her. So I can't help but notice how often she comes late and how much it damages her success. I can't help but mention it to her, but here's the problem. Likely, she either can change or it's hugely difficult for her to change. So this invariable need to change a spouse never succeeds, never accomplishes its goal. All it does is frustrate one the other, and all it does is create a tremendous amount of havoc in a relationship. So that's background. Now, women happen to have this trait much more than men, again, because of maternal instinct and et cetera. And I found many a times that a woman gets into a relationship, and I'll be frank, there are many times that women are more mature, more put together than their husbands. So let's say you have a marriage where that's happening. She is more responsible financially. She's more responsible with the children. She's really, you know, listen, typically, if you, if you speak to a grade school teacher, they'll tell you, that on average, the boys are two years less mature than the girls. Okay, so here's what happens. A young man and a young woman get married. She's got it together, and he's whatever. He's less responsible, less financial prudent, and she realizes soon into the marriage that if she doesn't put her foot down, they're going to spend into debt, and they're never going to accomplish what they need. The taxes never get filed. So she takes over the job and the role of the drill sergeant, master in charge of the marriage. And I've seen many a time when a woman from a good place and good women act like they're absolutely tyrants, demanding that the husband do this, be here, do that, and brooking no excuses. And they act like, I don't want to say it, but I, I sometimes look at women and say, my good, do you know what it's like to be married to you? You're a tyrant. You're a drill sergeant. You're a despot. Like, stop it. The reason why Laura Doyle's book is very important for some marriages or some women is because if a woman finds herself in that place where she has taken over the role of being the one in charge of things, it's very difficult for a husband to be married to such a woman. First of all, it's a thing called the male ego. But even if the male ego wasn't what the male ego was, it's not easy for anybody to take orders 
from a boss and actually like that person, let alone love them. And many times women make it very, very difficult for their husbands to love them when they boss them around, when they bully them, when they even with good intentions. So for those situations and those marriages, Laura Doyle's book is very helpful and very beneficial. Um, in terms of whether I quoted in my book, I don't, I don't recall offhand. I definitely, I read extensively many, many secular marriage books. Obviously, I tried to do as much reading I could in Chazal and 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 Das Torah, but I read pretty much every popular, you know, well-known marriage book. So it could well be that I unconsciously adopted certain points from her. But again, I definitely feel the book has a lot of value in some marriages and and for certain situations, I definitely recommend it. What's the key point of the book that helps solve the problem you just mentioned? For her to recognize that if she doesn't give up control, she's going to continue being miserable. You can't control another human being. Certainly not in a marriage, but you can't control anyone. And the thought that if I don't take control, we're going to go bankrupt or we're not going to, you know, okay, so we're going to go bankrupt. One thing for sure, we're going to be in financial difficulty. Either we're going to be happily married in financial difficulty or we're going to be, you know, in the same financial difficulty and unhappily married. And when a woman realizes that it's not working anyway, it never works because uh, maybe she could bully the husband into doing things, but it's never worth the cost because he ends up being so, he's become so negative towards her and it creates such ill will that it's just never worth it. So when she realizes that, hopefully at that point she gives it up and says, okay, we'll do the best we can. She stops becoming the drill sergeant. They become equal partners in this marriage. They do the best they can. And it could be right. Financially, things don't work out too well. Or in terms of, you know, getting things done, things don't work out too well, but they're happy. And suddenly, first of all, he's a lot more likely to be willing and interested in A, meeting her emotional needs, B, even meeting those needs that she originally was, you know, focused on, namely the household chores. I think either you write or I've read this somewhere else that if a wife acts towards her husband like a mother, then you shouldn't be surprised if he stops acting like a husband and starts acting like a whiny son or something. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely true. I don't know if I wrote it either, but it's it's definitely true, right? What do you think about marriage therapy? Rabbi Manus Friedman, who is a popular Lubavitch speaker, once said that a marriage therapist is the last person you should go to if you wish to save your marriage. And I also heard him say in connection with this general question that a therapist at best can offer you advice on how not to be angry at your wife. He can't tell you why, morally speaking, you shouldn't be angry at your wife. What's your opinion on marriage therapy? Okay, so let me indirectly answer that question. Why did I write this book? And more than that, why am I so focused now on getting the video book out? There's a video book of the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes. Because there's one thing that's lacking fundamentally from a marriage that no marriage therapist can ever provide. And that is understanding the nature of a marriage. You see, if you go to the doctor because you have a problem with your pancreas or because you have a problem with your liver or your heart, the doctor can deal with the topical issue. The topical issue may be endangering your entire health and you may die if you don't deal with it but the bottom line is being healthy requires eating right exercising keeping your stress levels down a doctor cannot provide that for you no doctor in the world can do that so here's really what happens i find when you have a marriage that's in trouble and you have a conflict there are times when you need a marriage therapist and there are times when without a marriage therapist you're not going to get back to equilibrium But even if the marriage therapist is able to do his or her job properly and perfectly, you still have to do the incredibly real work of understanding what a marriage is, working on the relationship, understanding your part, her part, and figuring out how to make this thing work. So that's really, to me, that's the primary knowledge gap 
that was lacking. That's why I wrote this book, because I wrote it as a guide to direct people to understand what it is that a marriage needs, what it requires, what it what should you expect, how to stay healthy in a marriage. You would call it marriage fitness if you want. The point is, if you keep it healthy, you end up not needing those repairs. If you even if you do need the repairs, it's a lot quicker and a lot easier. But regardless, you need this information. I once heard someone say something like that in marriage therapy, it really there's a very basic value judgments that come into play. I mean, in the secular world at large, I'm generalizing, but there's a general notion that marriage is for my personal happiness. So if I'm not happy now, maybe it's time for me to move on. Whereas in Judaism, we have a bias towards, you know, this marriage is a sacred union. We're supposed to always try to make it work, barring, of course, extreme circumstances. So there's a bias either in one direction or possibly in another direction, depending on whom you're asking for advice. Even forget therapy for a second. If I'm asking person A for advice or person B for advice, I might get two different types of advice, depending on what that person thinks the point of marriage is. That's definitely true. That's definitely true. But even if you have a marriage therapist who has a good outlook on life, which, you know, you're right, is very debatable and, and, and very questionable, even then their goal, their role is very limited. And again, what they can help you with is they're needed sometimes, but again, it's not going to solve the overall issue because if you're not eating right, not exercising, not keeping your stress levels down, you're going to be unhealthy and you're going to suffer. So going to the specialist for the problem that, that came up, you may be able to deal with your heart condition. You may be able to deal with your pancreas, but again, you're going to go back to the same problem unless you actually make sure that your marriage is intact, that you're working on the real health of it, which again, I think is, is things that you need to understand about the marriage. And that's why, again, I wrote the books. Right. And again, I don't want to belabor the issue because you made several references. So you have to understand what marriage is, what marriage is. What, what is marriage then, if you don't mind? Yeah, that's a good question. What is marriage? So marriage is a relationship. It's a, let, let me use Chazal's words, reim ahuvim, best friends who love each other. But you have to understand what that means. Best friends means I'm dedicated to the other person's good. I'm looking out for the other person. I have needs, I have things that I absolutely need, but I'm focused on the other person and understanding that at the end of the day, her needs are going to be different than mine. Her temperament is different, her nature is different, things that she needs are going to be different and figuring out what's normal for her and how I can meet those needs and at the same time her back for me. It's a very complex, you know, one of the reasons why marriage is so complex is because every human being is different. So by definition, every marriage is going to be different. If you have two different people, their relationship is going to be different than any other two people. So every single marriage is different. Every single relationship is different. Men and women are vastly different. A marriage is a harmonious, supposed to be, a harmonious relationship where you're meeting your spouse's needs, she's meeting your needs, and together you're in this environment of support, best friends who love each other, going through life together with your companion, with your other half, going through life hopefully happily and harmoniously. That's certainly the goal. I don't know if I answered the question, Elliot, but that's but in Thompson's Advarim, in short words, I believe that's that would be a definition. Best friends who love each other. I want to ask you something that I, I actually asked you when I interviewed you for the Jewish Press two years ago, which I think was one of the key uh, points of your book, is you mentioned, I think you actually quote some study. I'm actually not a huge fan of psychology in general, but mostly because I don't like the grand theories that, that psychologists come up with about life and what whatnot, which, which are really, I think, just a form of philosophy rather than actual science. I do kind of like, though, when they do these like little mini experiments, where you can, that, that I find sometimes very illustrative. So I think you said that there's someone did a study once or did a, like, a survey, and they found that 
men, they asked men and women, what would you rather have, be respected or be loved? And women said, I'd rather be loved. And men said, they'd rather be respected. But I thought it was a very interesting answer and it's sort of a key, I think, in your book. And I think you mentioned the Rambam mentions that for a man, it's much more important. If you could elaborate on that point, the difference between men and women and what they need or want out of a marriage. Okay, Elliot. So because it's being recorded, I have to be very guarded because I could get arrested today because free speech, free thought are no longer rights given to us human beings. So what I will say is politically not accepted, not politically correct. But let me say it anyway, as radical as it may sound. Are you ready? Are you sitting? Are you, are, are you with me? <clears throat> Here we go. Men and women are different. Let me say it again. One second. Men and women are different. They're not the same. No, no, no. Different needs, different temperament, different interests. Different. They're living in different worlds. Just watch little girls and little boys. They're so different. I have, Barksham, I have a bunch of grandchildren. I happen to have three grandchildren about the same age, two girls and a boy. And the girls are twins, six years old. And the boy is just about the same age. And they love playing together. But the girls look at him at some point and go, we just sit down and be normal. He's running and jumping and playing with everyone. We just sit down and play. And, and they, they can't wrap their heads around why he's so, because he's a boy. And believe me, by the time they're eight or nine, they're not going to play together. Because at the very core of their essence, Hashem designed a man and a woman to be fundamentally different. And even though, again, this is not politically correct, we're demanded by science or certainly by liberalism, by the great religion of liberalism, to forget what's obvious and clear. It should be obvious and clear to any thinking person that men and women have different needs, different interests. Now, the reason why this becomes so complex in a marriage today is because when we're inundated with this idea that men and women are the same, what happens in a marriage so many times is he expects her to be just like him. She expects him to be just like her. And just what happens is, in a very short time, here, I'll give you a good for instance. You say the Rambam. The Rambam says that basically the, the formula for a successful marriage is a man has to love his wife as much as himself and treat her more, with more respect than himself. And the Rambam says she has to treat him with an exceeding amount of respect. Now, one of the observations is the Rambam left out love by the woman. He has to love her as himself and respect her more than himself. She just has to respect him exceedingly. Does the Rambam expect a woman to be in a loveless marriage? The answer is love is natural to a woman. If her needs are met, if she feels her spouse cares for her and is attached to her, naturally the love will overflow from her and she'll have that natural attachment, that natural bond. For a man, it's a lot harder. Men go out to work or whatever they do, and they're very involved in their world. That statistic that I quoted was actually by a very interesting woman. She's a fiction writer. And when she was writing for fiction, she was trying to research to see a certain point, And she kept asking men who gave her the wrong answer. And she realized that there's certain strange things. Anyway, she was a very intelligent woman. She hired a census taker to, to do full interviews. And what she discovered is that men and women answer many questions in polar opposite ways. And she wrote two books. One is for women only. Her name is Shanti Felden. You can look it up. The books are very well worth reading. In any case, what she discovered is that men and women have different needs innately in the relationship. If a woman doesn't feel that she's cherished, if she doesn't feel that her husband loves her, if she doesn't feel that her husband puts her first, she will be miserable. And I've seen this on a regular basis. I'll have a couple come into my office and I'll ask him, how's your marriage? Good, Baruch Hashem. I'll say to her, how's your marriage? It's terrible, it's horrible. Wait, are you guys married like to each other? Like, what's going on here? And the answer is, 
his needs are met. He works, he's dedicated to his family, and he really is a good guy. And the only thing lacking there is she's not getting the attention that she needs. She doesn't feel that she, he cherishes her. She doesn't feel that he really puts her first. And even though he'll work like a dog, and even though he'll take a bullet for her, and I've seen this regularly, where a guy will literally take a bullet for his wife, but his wife says the words, he doesn't love me. And gentlemen, this is the big secret. Anyone who's listening to this, listen to me very carefully. It is the husband's responsibility to romance his wife. Let me say it again. It is the husband's responsibility to romance his wife. Most guys, if they don't go out, if they don't get the, the wife doesn't buy him cards, he's okay. I've met very few guys who say, my wife never buys me a gift or a card. Ah. I met many women who say that. Because a woman has a need in her essence to be cherished, to be loved. If she knows that her husband loves her, if she knows that her husband cherishes her, she'll be happy. If she doesn't know that, forget about it. So, the differences between men and women are very real. Again, we're taught by popular culture today that they're not there. And guess what the success rate of that uh, philosophy is for life and for marriage? Not very high. And I think that book that I mentioned, Feldman's book, is a good read because it brings these points out in very clear, clear ways. Right. And then the opposite side, I think you also mentioned how important it is for women towards men, that men may it's a male ego, but men crave respect and they can't have all the love in the world, but without respect. Right. You know, Ellie, you know, it's respect, but it's more than needing respect. It's the lack of respect that will kill him. You see, and women don't re realize this. He doesn't need you to stand up when you walk into the door. He doesn't need you to, to bow down to him. The one thing that you have to do is not treat him with disrespect. And women don't get this. I had a f certain family member who, when she would come into the house, I would leave. Why? Because she was so overly helpful. It used to drive me nuts. Lady, I know how to tie my shoes. I'm grown. You know, and women sometimes they try to be helpful. And they don't realize that to a man it's insulting. Like disrespect in a man's world is a very powerful thing. When a woman, you know, let's go back to Laurel Doyle. So when a woman tells her husband, do this or do that or be here, why'd you, you know, it's, he perceives that as extremely disrespectful. Now, the reason he perceives that as disrespectful is because he's an adult. And even if he knows that he's doing wrong, and by the way, uh, here, listen, if a guy bounced a check or a guy showed up late, he knows it, he gets it, he's not a fool. But when you tell it to him in very clear terms and you say it to him as a school teacher, the amount of disrespect that he's experiencing at that moment is powerful and that is disastrous to a marriage. So I would say the key is a woman needs to be cherished, she needs to be loved, it's a husband's responsibility to romance his wife. Ladies, make sure that you don't treat your husband with disrespect. Disrespect means listen to the way you talk to him, listen to the way you request things, and recognize whether you're treating him as you would another adult, or you've gotten so accustomed to just bossing him around or, or just speaking in a way that's not nice that you don't even realize it anymore. Okay, I want to ask you one critical question on your book. So in your book you advise men to listen to their wives speak about annoying people in their lives without trying to offer solutions. Because you write that, it's very, that women often just want to vent to those they love. They're not looking for solutions. But isn't venting problematic according to the Torah when it concerns other people? I mean, we're not supposed to badmouth people just because we feel like it. So instead of advising men to listen to their wives vent, wouldn't it perhaps be better to advise women not to vent and to understand why their husbands feel uncomfortable just listening silently? There used to be, uh, you know, pull on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind. There's a certain things that you don't do because they're dumb. 
uh, asking a woman not to vent would be right there in that category. You see, it is the nature of a woman to express what's on her mind. Women talk for many reasons, certainly to bond, to connect, but certainly to process emotions. And asking a woman not to speak would be about as uh, unlikely to work as, I don't know, asking the wind not to blow. Um, so you can't ask her. Um Hara is a real issue, it's a real problem. My point was not getting involved in, in the Lashon Hara aspect of it. My point was really recognizing that it's the nature of a woman to need to share, to communicate what's on her heart, and understanding that you offer great solace, a great bonding, a great connection, and when you do that to your wife, is a part of a successful marriage. Let me, let me give you a good example. I was a high school Rebbe for many years, and I found something very interesting. Guys would come to me with life questions, issues, thoughts, and very often they came to me for real advice, and I thought I did a decent job. Guys came to me 20 years later, Rabbi Shaver, the advice you gave me back in high school, I still use it today, thank you. So I thought I was doing a pretty decent job. And then every time I'd come home and my wife would ask me for my advice, she was never happy with my advice. Now, it was almost like my IQ dropped 80 points as soon as I crossed the threshold. I didn't get it. What took me 10 years, more than 10 years of marriage, to realize is that my wife wasn't asking for my advice. She was asking to share her world with me. She was asking to bond, to connect. Women typically bond. They connect through speaking, through talking. That's how they create that bond. And when a husband learns to listen to his wife, not to offer advice, but to listen and to share that bond, it's a very powerful and very bonding experience. If he offers advice instead, it distances her, puts a block, and creates tremendous, tremendous disharmony in the marriage. I think perhaps, especially from man, why he might offer advice is because he feels just listening to my wife complain about her sister or something, there's no to else here. It's all, you know, basically Lashon Hara, or if not Lashon, even if it's not technically Lashon Hara, it's a bad situation. All she's doing is bad-mouthing somebody. At least if I offer a solution, now there's at least a purpose to, you know, maybe we can make things better. If I can't make things better, then all we're doing here is just gossiping. It's not a from thing to do, I think. That's the way he's thinking. You said it perfectly, his perspective and her perspective. And once you understand that, you'll understand one of the keys to a marriage. The key to a marriage isn't how I perceive it, it's how does my spouse perceive it. My ability to climb into my spouse's inner world and my ability to, to jump into their emotional realm and recognize what they're experiencing is one of the keys to a successful relationship. And the first step in that is to recognize that the way I experience things may not be the way my spouse does. My experience is the way I experience things, but it doesn't define reality. Too many times we take that attitude that the way I experience things defines reality, and then I become a very difficult person to be married to because, you see, my spouse experiences the very same thing in a very different way. In the very same event or the very same occurrence, she will experience in a vastly different way. For a woman, when she's venting, she's processing her, her emotions, she comes away. By the way, invariably it happens. A husband and wife get into a fight. And the wife wants to continue, and the husband just doesn't want It's not getting us anywhere. It's like, stop this. Getting, all we're doing is getting more embroiled. Many times the reason why a woman wants to continue is because she wants to resolve it, and by speaking about it more, and by bringing out her position, his position, for her, it often resolves things and brings it to a much better point. Typically, men get very quickly 
they get hijacked and emotionally they become out of it and very quickly they're no longer able to be intelligently in that process. Their men's emotions work differently. Typically they're not, I don't want to disparage men over here, but a level of emotional intelligence, typically women are better at it than men. Now the result of that is that if you're going to treat your spouse just like you, but of a different gender, but she's just like me, it's going to be very difficult to be married because she's not like you. I guarantee it. You're not like her. She's not like you. It just, it doesn't happen that way. And the ability to recognize why, you know, meaning if you're married for 10 years and your wife does the same thing again and again and again, maybe it's time to say, gee golly, why is she doing that? By the way, oh, here's in the book, Elliot, very important. I ask couples all the time, what are the two most important words in a marriage? This is a test of your, let's say, if you're paying attention to the book. What are the two most important words in a marriage? I know the answer to the question because I, I read the book and I saw one of your videos once where you explained this. But so Most people say, I love you. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Nope. Two most important words in your marriage are the words, that's strange. That's strange. Why? Because when you say the words, that's strange, you then look at your spouse with the scientific curiosity to figure out why are they reacting that way. I don't get it. She's normally a grounded, sober person, and she's getting so emotional. That's strange. Why is she doing it? That's strange. He's normally a kind, considerate guy. Why would he act so callous? That strange opens you up to the scientific curiosity to then discover the inner world of your spouse. Now, you say those words to yourself. You don't say it to your spouse. But if you approach it from a scientific perspective, you put away your agendas, you put away your bias, put away your experience, and look at your spouse and say, I don't get it. For 10 years now, I've been saying X, and she reacts, why, why, why is it? She's a nice person. She normally is so kind. Why would she do it? If you do that very, very difficult step, what you begin to realize is maybe, maybe, you ready for this one? Maybe because she's different than me. Maybe because she feels things differently than I do. Maybe because she has a different experience than I do. Maybe the thing that we both lived through that looks one way to me looks vastly different to her. And once you do that step, then you begin the ability to climb into her emotional world, to recognize her reality, and then you can be happily married. If you're not able to do that, it's impossible to be happily married because she's incredibly just irrational or illogical, whatever. That ability is a big step to be able to climb into the emotional world of my spouse and recognize it as valid and then work with it is a huge step in a successful marriage. Okay, last question. You consider Rehenach Leibovich, the former Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim, to be your main Rebbe, if I'm not mistaken. Before you go, can you please speak about him for a minute or two? What about him made him so special, and what did his greatness lie? That's a great question. The Shiva Tzal was the warmest, nicest, most concerned, most caring human being I ever knew, the humblest human being I, I ever knew, and the wisest person I ever knew. I don't know, the Roshiva Zetzal was not just a guttle, he was a guttle Yisrael, but he was much more, I, I don't know, he had a Masora and uh, caring, giving over, and he knew to build up Talmidim. He never gave Musa, never gave Musa. I was a very close Talmud, and I used to say to the Roshiva, Rebbe, you know I could take it, you could take it. One time, one time the Roshiva told me something straight, and I want you to know, I realized why he never says Musa. It pushed me away. I, I felt a wedge. I still, I loved the Roshiva, and I still respect, but there was... Like the words, and I realized something very, very critical over there. Criticism is the most damaging force in any human relationship. The Shiva's ability to see the greatness in another person and build it up was incredible. The reason why I want to share that right now is because in marriage, 
That is one of the most important things. I guarantee your spouse has flaws. I guarantee it. First of all, how do I know your spouse has flaws? Because we all have flaws. We, if we were perfect, we'd be done our job here. It'd be time to leave. Let's hope your spouse still has flaws. But here's the great Kiddush in the humanity. You too have flaws. I guarantee it. Because again, if you didn't, you'd be out of here as well. Okay, so here's the problem. And the problem is I can't help but notice the flaws of my spouse. And out of goodness, out of concern, I'll mention them to her, to him. Now, besides needing to change my spouse, which is one need, criticism is so destructive to the relationship. It drives a wedge between people, distances people. You see, what does it feel like to be loved? It feels you're accepted, you're embraced, you're validated. What does it feel like to be criticized? I feel put down, not good enough. You have become a vastly unworthy human being. When you criticize your spouse with all the good intentions in the world, and what it does is it damages the relationship and wrecks the bond and the connection, and you have to avoid it like a plague. You ask about the Shiva, one of the strengths of the Shiva is to build a human being up and never criticize. And it's something I think is an incredibly important lesson for marriage. And, and again, I spend a lot of time in the book discussing that point, the damage of criticism. Okay, thank you so very much, Rabbi Shafir, for your time. Elliot, thank you. A pleasure. All right, that does it for us. If you'd like to buy Rabbi Shafir's book, The 10 Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, there's a link to the book in the episode description. I hope you enjoyed the episode and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast.